Lord, we thank you for the privilege of having your word revealed to us. Lord, we know that <clears throat> although there were men that actually sat down and wrote these records down of the history of Israel, and in particular the history of David, that you are ultimately the author. This is your word, and Lord, it is breathed out for our benefit. And so I ask this morning that we would um, truly believe that you have something specific that you want to challenge us with this morning. You want to strengthen us. You want to point us in a direction, Lord, that would um, direct us to your son and direct us to our own sinfulness and the struggles that we face or the, uh, the problems, Lord, that we, we have to endure. And Lord, give us strength and give us wisdom, um, Lord, from this text and uh, encourage us and challenge us, Lord. And I ask that as your messenger, I would simply be your mouthpiece, that you would be glorified by what is said and done this morning. We ask in your name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. <coughs> Excuse me. The great country western singer and theologian Dolly Parton once said, the way I see it, if you want the rainbow, you got to put up with the rain. There's a lot of truth to that statement. Uh, a lot of times we want all the good stuff in life, and we want the promises to be fulfilled, and yet we get angry that rain actually has to fall in order for us to enjoy the beauty of the rainbow. And, and that, that statement actually might be a summary of the text before us today. David is enduring the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, her husband. But he's also a man who's living with a renewed faith, believing in the promises of God that God made to him. And ultimately, that, that David, ultimately, God will make David and his name great, that he would give his people a place, ultimately the land of Israel. He would give David a house, a dynasty, and through that dynasty, his kingdom would last forever, and that, that dynasty would include a son, and that's a, that's a future look to that ultimate son who is Jesus Christ himself. And yet, things are not looking good for David. David has been run out of town, so to speak. And while he has been on this journey, there has been rain, but there's also been encouragement. And last week, we began by looking at chapter 15, and we saw Absalom's conspiracy beginning, but we also saw some examples of encouragement in the form of three groups, three Men. And it was, as we come to our passage today, we're going to see some strong language, some, some insults, some manipulative scheming, even some potential violence. So these are hard, grueling days for David and for his people. But this is just the reign of consequence that leads to the fulfillment of the rainbow of God's promises. Now, 
Again, chapter 15 begins this whole section that that goes from chapter 15, you could say through chapter 20, but more specifically, this Absalom section finishes up in chapter 18. And the narrator wants us to see that even in David's trial, this consequence that he is he's living out because of his sin with Bathsheba and the murder that he committed, that there is hope. So even when we sin, and even though we are facing the consequences of our sin, that is not the end. That God is still at work in us to work through us and to strengthen us and to build us and to conform us to the image of his son. And so that's why these three groups of people came to encourage David as he was fleeing the city of Jerusalem, going off into the wilderness. And just to remind you, there was Ittai the Gittite. There were the, the, the clergy, that would be uh, Abiathar and Zadok and then the Levites. And then there was this man called David's friend, Hushai the Archite. All of them were men who encouraged David by their faith, by their loyalty, and they'll, they'll continue to be part of the story as it unfolds. But life isn't always that easy. Life is not always full of people coming along and encouraging us. In fact, much of life uh, is made up of people opposing us as we are seeking to walk along the journey that God has called us to. It's not unusual for us to face opposition, and that's what we're gonna find here in chapter 16. Now, what we have here is opposition is not like some kind of army coming up against David. They're individuals, and they're forms of opposition that are a little bit more subtle, or for different reasons, are coming into the life of David as he is retreating, as he's fleeing from the city. And what we're gonna see here is an opposition in the form of manipulation, in the form of cursing, in the form of impulsiveness. But each of these examples of opposition will remind us that we live in a sin-cursed world driven by the passions of the flesh. And those passions of the flesh drive other people and we are always tempted to be driven by them ourselves. So things like personal gain or attitudes of revenge or even just reactions that that our drive naturally kicks into, all opposing what God has for us. And so this morning, I'd like to kind of summarize what we're looking at here in these 14 verses this way. Divine perspective for the servant of God in the face of opposition. And I think if if we were to kind of go into the woods, so to speak, of this text, and then we were to kind of step back from this text, what we're gonna see is that God wants us to learn and to grow in having a divine perspective about the kind of opposition that we're gonna face in the midst of our journey, in the midst of our struggle with the trials that we have. Now in David's situation, the trial that he's going through is as a result of the consequence of his sin. So you could bring that specifically as an application to you if you're going through some discipline because of the consequence of your sin. But I think you can broaden it by saying, as we're going through different trials, there are gonna be times of opposition and people are gonna come and take advantage of us or they're going to somehow want to use us or they're gonna, they're gonna just not be an encouragement. They're gonna be people who stand in the way of progress. Now I remember when I, when I was a youth pastor, 
And I shared a little bit of this with you, I think, before. Um, I went on a missions trip to, to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And, and to this day, I do, not, uh, I do not forget what I learned on that trip because it was all we did. The person who was leading it was a little strange, but he drilled into my head, and I think all the young people that were there, something about how to behave when you're under pressure. I think this actually came out of some military manual or something like that because it, really it was really kind of a, an intense thing. But he said, listen, the goal in life is when you're under pressure is to think clearly, is to exercise self-control, and is to submit to authority. So it's to think clearly under pressure. That's a good thing. To exercise self-control under pressure. That's a good thing. To submit to authority under pressure. That's a good thing. And maybe in today's culture, it might be a more difficult thing because authority has really been challenged. But in our context, who's our authority? I mean, ultimately, it's God. It's Christ. It's the word of God that he has breathed out for us to humble ourselves under. And so those are realities. And as we think about what's going on here, God wants to remind us to think clearly, to be teachable, to trust confidently in him in the face of the kinds of opposition that we may have coming into our journey. And that he will not fail to keep his promises to his children. So remember, David is God's chosen servant. He is the king of Israel. Although his son is seeking to usurp him as king, even David is referred to his son as the king, David is still the Lord's anointed. David is still the man after God's own heart. This is not, that expression is not referring to David's heart and he's going after God. That's somehow a misunderstood application. The, this, the, the phrase there, a man after God's own heart, means that God has chosen a man to follow him, to serve him, to, to, to be his reflection on the earth. That's the picture of that statement. And that is still true, even though David is undergoing the chastening, disciplining, hand of God. And if you remember, David recognized that he had sinned greatly because he was confronted by Nathan. And after that confrontation, he repents. Peter this morning read part of Psalm 51 that describes that repentance. And David is pouring out his heart before God and he is seeking forgiveness. He's asking for a clean heart and God grants him forgiveness and he restores him. But forgiveness is not void of consequence for sin. Again, in our culture, that is not something that is popular. People want forgiveness without the consequence. But in God's economy, there's consequence, and David now is living out that consequence. And ultimately, the, the initial consequence, David's, what he deserved was death. That was put on the, on the child that was born in his place. That, that child suffered and died. But that consequence continued on because God promised that David's life would be full of struggle and that he'd have to live with these consequences and that there would be, um, there would be um, a sword in his family and there would be this, this sexual, vile behavior that, that would be just on display before him. Um, so we can say this, that David is under both God's election as well as God's judgment, but he remains God's chosen servant. And friends, that's something, there's something beautiful about that for us. 
Because many times, because we're under God's judgment, because we're living with the consequence of our sin, because we know that we've, you know, we've fallen short of what God wants us to do, sometimes we ask the question, well, could God still love me? And, and, and am I still his? And the truth is, you are. And you are under his chastening hand. But he hasn't let go of you. His hand is a hand of justice and judgment, but it's also a hand that has you in his grip. And that brings confidence to us that God is a gracious God. He doesn't give us what we deserve, ultimately. He gives us mercy and grace. And so this morning, we want to look at these three men who are, I might want to say, foils or cameos of opposition. And we'll begin now with Ziba, Ziba, the manipulator. Ziba, the manipulator. Now, I will be honest with you. If you just look at these 14 verses, you may not come to the conclusion initially that Ziba is a manipulator. But if you look at this passage in its greater context, as the story unfolds, you will realize that Ziba is actually seeking to manipulate David here. So we're bringing the context to help us understand what is happening in this particular section. Ziba is about to do to David um, Something that, again, is not readily apparent here, but we will ultimately see some of, the, some of the reasons why, even from the text, we can come to this conclusion. But he's taking advantage of the situation to manipulate David toward his agenda. Look at verse one. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him. Now remember, David is journeying out of Jerusalem. And so you could actually watch the, the geography of, of what happens in chapter 15 through chapter 16, all these different kind of locations along the way. When Ziba comes then, we're told here by the narrator that he is the servant of Mephibosheth. So that takes us back to chapter 9. Uh, as a servant of Saul, we are introduced to Ziba, and Ziba is the one that David asks, hey, does anyone know if there are any more descendants of Saul? And of course, people are thinking, well, David, you want to kill him. And Ziba says, well, there's one, and his name is Mephibosheth. And you remember, Mephibosheth is the one who is, is lame. And so David extends kindness to Mephibosheth. And he brings him to the palace. He brings him to eat at his table. In other words, to be a part of his family. But by virtue of the fact that, that Mephibosheth was lame, he could not manage all of the estates that were still part of the house of Saul, still under, I'm going to say, land ownership. He gives the responsibility then of all of that to Ziba. Okay? That's going to play out here as to why he's coming. So we, we jump in now, and I want you to notice that although we we're thinking that Ziba is coming with a genuine purpose, he's actually coming uh, with some manipulation. Notice, first of all, how generous Ziba is. He comes to David with all sorts of goodies, right? Where are these goodies from? They're from all these estates, from which all those belong to Mephibosheth, right? Two donkeys, 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 summer fruits, one skin of wine. Now, it's understandable where these came from, but it appears that Ziba is truly being thoughtful, that he's being considerate, and he is actually seeking to be generous to his king, David. That is the appearance that we have here. 
But it also appears here that David is a little suspicious. So he asked Ziba a question. Look at verse 2. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? It's not usually the kind of question you would have when a friend brings something like this. Why have you brought these? But Ziba doesn't really answer the question. He just says, this is for this person, this is for this person, right? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And so he's thinking this through. These are all the people that would want and benefit from all this kind of stuff. But he really doesn't answer the question. Now how fortunate how, how thoughtful, how considerate, how generous it is to have transportation, to have food, to have wine for the journey. Ziba is a good man. Ziba is a, a generous man. Ziba is a loyal man. But is he? There's still something nagging David, so he asks another question. With all this rebellion going on, in particular with Absalom and the conspiracy that he has started, he's wondering what's going on with Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth is Ziba's master. Okay? So where's Ziba's master? Where is the owner of all these goods that you're giving me here today? And this is what ultimately Ziba is waiting for. This was Ziba's ruse to secure what he had been given um, and after a while, he wanted David to land the plane here because he's seizing this opportunity to poison the character of his master's reputation and loyalty to David. Notice what he says. Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem. It's not a problem. And it's understandable. Why? Because he's lame. He probably couldn't make a quick escape unless someone was carrying him somewhere. It makes sense. But notice... For he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Aha, here's the motive. Ziba is saying, David, Mephibosheth is disloyal to you. He's staying in Jerusalem because all this time he's been pining away, hoping and longing that the house of Saul would revive and that he would then be the king of Israel. But unlike Mephibosheth, I'm here, David. I'm here now, and I'm bringing you all this stuff. Now, notice not only how generous Ziba is, that actually should be how loyal Ziba is now. Notice also how gracious Ziba is. Even though it appears that David had some suspicion, Ziba's scandalous accusation of Mephibosheth is extremely compelling to David, so much so that he's taken in by Ziba's performance and he is deceived. David says in verse four, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. So you, you see where Ziba's going with it. And Ziba, totally playing the part, responds in humble graciousness to David's kindness by saying, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my Lord, my King. And this expression to pay homage is, is to bow down and to, to, not to worship. It's a word that is used of worship, but it's that idea of, of just being prostrate on the floor and, and just, just being before David and being so thankful and being gracious for his kindness to him. So Ziba had been 
successful in his deception, but what is striking here is how quickly David had responded to Ziba's statement and his ruse and his deception and given Ziba all the land that he was already overseeing. He makes this grand gift to Ziba, but he makes this grand gift without all the facts. So Ziba had been successful in his plan, but David had been quickly taken in by Ziba's deception. Now, what are the holes in Ziba's plan? What 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 are the things that you might say from this text was like, all right, there's something not right here. Well, let me give you a couple of them. Just think through these. First of all, for Mephibosheth to think that Absalom's rebellion is an opportunity to have Saul's kingdom or for him to be king is really a pipe dream. All right, Absalom is looking out for who? Absalom, okay? So it doesn't make any sense that Absalom is seeking to overthrow David to put Mephibosheth back on the throne. That doesn't make any sense at all. In fact, it's pretty ludicrous. Secondly, Ziba, although he, he shows loyalty for David, does not move to join David like Ittai and the priests and Hushai. All those guys came and they're like, we're ready to go with you. Ziba comes and he says, here's some gifts, but he, he's not like, I'm, I'm jumping in with you, let's go. He's like, I'm giving some gifts and I'm, I'm going to go back now. Right? There, there, isn't this, there isn't this commitment, there isn't this demonstration of loyalty by his actions. So th- those are two holes in the story, at least in, in the text, that say, wait a second, there's something not right here. Later we'll find out that that's exactly the case, that this was a, a, a manipulative move on his part. Now let's just think through this. This is a reminder, friends, that when we are in a trial, when we're suffering, we must be very careful and cautious to make quick and costly decision. I want you to think about this. David was tired, hence the donkeys. David was hungry, hence the food. David was thirsty, hence the wine. Which is another way of saying that his flesh was vulnerable. So when you're going through a trial, when you're going through a difficulty, you are vulnerable to be taken advantage of. And there's a need for us to to be thinking very carefully. As is often said, don't go grocery shopping when? When you're hungry, right? Why is that true? Because when you go to the grocery store when you're hungry, you're not thinking with your head, you're thinking with your belly. And you're, you're salivating as you're walking through, right? And you're thinking about all the things that this can be. And you'll end up spending far more money than you need to. And you'll end up buying things that you just, that really are just wasteful. Why? Because you're not thinking. Your flesh is kicked in and it's your flesh that's driving you. And that's true about trials and suffering. And even those times when we know that we're, we're under God's chastening or disciplined hand, there's a temptation to function out of our feelings, by our flesh, by our appetites, rather than by sound and careful thinking. Now, this, friends, this is, this is also one of the sad realities of life. People out there know that. 
And as a result of that, there are people that are waiting, hoping that you will turn to them in times of desperation and need. And they will offer you the world. If you will save a little bit more money and you will invest in this commodity, you will be sure to reap a profit. Just maybe in a, in a couple of years, you'll be able to pay those bills and have that house and pay for that college bill. And, you know, yeah, you can do this. Just, just sign here. I've done it. If I've helped lots of people. And they're, look, they're out of debt. If you, if you don't believe me, just get up in the middle of the night, maybe one, two o'clock at night, and turn on the TV, and you'll see a lot of infomercials that are challenging you to do that. Or maybe your, your car's broken down, and now you're, you're desperate to get a new one, or a, a slightly broken in one, as they say. And the car salesman comes, and he promises you he is here to help you. He is here to make sure that all the considerations are brought before you, and he will do anything he can to, to help you purchase a vehicle that day. But ultimately, he's looking to make a sale. And so, he offers a warranty package by this car. If you do it now, I'll add in this warranty package. Great. He promises that any problem that you encounter, maybe a nick here or maybe the muffler is a little bit dented or something like that, that'll be dealt with, no problem. He even offers to get you a nice warm cookie and a cup of coffee. I mean, hey, listen, if you're gonna do it, you're gonna do it well. Chocolate chip cookies, nice cup of coffee. He, he convinces you of all the reasons why you need this car and why you need it now. Not tomorrow, now. Without praying about it, without asking your trusted friends about it, without taking time to consider your options, it's interesting, my wife and I went looking for cars. And we walk in and say, listen, just want you to know we're looking. We're not gonna buy a car today. We always make a practice of praying about it. So just want you to know up front, that meant nothing to them. <laughs> they're still, they're like, it's more like, okay, challenge time, challenge time. And they're going, oh, I'm gonna go, these guys out here, they think, oh, we're gonna pray about it, yeah. And they go out there, they're trying to make that sale, right? But people, sadly, want to take advantage of you. By the way, if you're a car salesman, I'm, I'm really not trying to <laughs> make light of you here. So I'm sure there's some really good ones out there. Um. <laughs> Ultimately, people who are seeking to take advantage of you want you to be vulnerable. And they want to take advantage of that vulnerability to make you Make decisions based on your feelings rather than on careful, thoughtful, practical thinking. Okay, now friends, this is, this is so important. Now you've heard, you've heard me say this plenty of times. The best time to develop a theology of suffering is when? Not when you're going through suffering. <laughs> the best time to develop a theology of suffering is before you go through that suffering, so that when you're in that suffering, you've already figured out what it is you need to do, and it's easier for your mind, your heart, to land the plane, forcing yourself against your desires and onto the truth of what God has revealed. If you don't do that, 
then you're far more likely to be swayed by how you feel and think even that God is speaking through your feelings. I feel this is what God wants me to do. When if, if you actually were to think about it ahead of time and, think, and just kind of process God's word, it'd be clear that that feeling actually betrays what God wants you to do. But it feels right. And there's another side to this. It, it, it's, it isn't when we're on the receiving end like David, but it's when we're acting and thinking like Ziba. We're like Ziba when we're looking for an opportunity to promote ourselves. And when we hear of someone else's misfortune, we stick ourselves into the situation to draw attention to ourselves, to take advantage of their difficulty, and to bolster our own prospects, even if it means cost to someone else. Now friends, this is, um, this is a reminder that even in the workplace, we must be people of integrity. Why are you bucking for that promotion? And are you willing to kind of like skirt the issue, so to speak, so that you get that promotion at the cost of someone else simply because you're taking advantage of some vulnerability that they have? And maybe you, you say something kind of backhanded because you're trying to tear their character down so that you can step into that role. See, we can all too easily be like Ziba, putting ourselves at the center and seeing ourselves and our future as the most important thing. So that's Ziba. He's the manipulator. Secondly, this Shimei, the cursor. Not, not, don't think computer screen here, okay? Um, think what comes out of his mouth. This is really kind of a, a, a humorous scene, but it's a very sad scene. And I've, I've actually gone to this passage and, and, and preached as, as, a, as a resource this passage, but really not understood the whole context of what's going on here. To understand why David is saying what he's saying. And I, I, you know, I think this is the beauty of working through a book and you begin to see, okay, this is what's going on. But this is now, as they're, as they're shifting from the summit of the Mount of Olives, they're in this place called Bahurim, and it's a, about an, a mile and a half northeast of Jerusalem. So in your mind, think about that. But you might remember this place as the place where Paltiel, who was the husband of Michael, is weeping because his wife has been taken away from him. Back to David, who actually was married to her in the first place, right? So all this stuff is going, this is the same location. And I want you to notice Shimei's spiteful cursing. Um, it's really it's a funny story, I mean it's a funny picture that here's Shimei and he's, he's a Benjamite and he is on top of this, this hill and he is, as the, as the people are going down there, he is yelling these curses out at David and he's throwing rocks and mud at them. Uh, it's, just, it's just kind of a, a funny scene. You could say this, though. What he's doing is he's kicking David while he's down. He's saying, David, your sins have finally found you out. And I'm going to let you know about it. And I'm going to remind you of it. So here's a rock in the head. And here's some mud you can swallow. And I'm going to keep on cursing. Just notice what it says, verse 5. When King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David. And all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men 
were on his right hand and on his left. I mean, this guy has to be mad with rage to be doing this just a short distance. I don't know about you. When's the last time you threw a rock as far as you can throw it? Even if it was from a hill. You're not that far away from the people. Okay? So he's kind of sticking his life on the line here, but he's so upset, he's so angry, he's so incensed that he is going to do this. And so he's willing to to mock and to insult and to harass David from what he thinks is a safe distance. But notice now Shimei's seething complaint. Verse 7 and following. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out! Get out! You man of blood, you worthless man. What he's doing here is he's doing two things. He's taunting David, and he's also insulting David. Let's just think about this taunting. Get out. I think you, you get this, this picture maybe when, when there's a, someone's being led to their death. I'm just thinking of times where there's a, there's a line of people and someone's kind of walking through and they've committed a horrible crime and the people are just yelling obscenities as they go by. Yeah, you're getting what you wanted. Go die. I hope it hurts. Stuff like that, right? So he's, what he's saying is, listen, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you get out of Jerusalem. You keep on running, David. Run, run, run. He is taunting him. And friends, this is what Jesus had to endure when he was hanging on the cross. Oh, so you think you're God, do you? Why don't you harness the powers of the universe and stop what's happening here? Here's how Mark describes it, Mark 15, 29, and 30. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. Same thing. Just taunting, taunting, mocking, scorning. To Jesus, they were saying, go on, save yourself. To David, Shimei is saying, get out. Yes, you get out. You deserve it. And I'm loving it. Now think about the insults. Specifically, what is he saying? He uses two expressions. He calls David a man of blood. That he's a murderer. And he calls David a, a worthless man. This is a description you find actually through First and Second Samuel. Remember Eli's sons right at the beginning of 1 Samuel, they're called worthless men, good for nothings. Nabal was a worthless man. Interestingly enough, a lot of the guys that came to surround David and to support David when he went off in the wilderness were these worthless men to society. The point here is this, that these two expressions were a severe and ultimate insult to David, the king, the anointed one. Now the irony in this this whole episode is that the very reason why David is in this situation is because of his adultery and his murder. You might even say the responsibility of not dealing with the rape and not dealing with another murder. But Shimei is not referring to the bloodshed of Uriah the Hittite or to the death of Amnon. 
what Shimei is referring to is the blood of the house of Saul. What he is doing here is he's saying, David, you usurped Saul and became king. And the reason Saul is dead, and the reason Jonathan is dead, and the reason you might want to say Ishbosheth is dead, and other descendants there, part of Saul's family, the reason that they are dead is because of you. You did this. You are responsible for their blood. Now, the interesting thing is that the writer of First and Second Samuel goes to great lengths to show that David is not responsible for their death. In fact, when Saul dies and when Jonathan dies, where's David? He's down in Ziklag. Why? Because the Philistines that he was with said, we're not going to go into battle with you because you're going to turn on, on us. They're like, go away. So David wasn't even there when the battle took place. But the conspiracy theorists were out there and they believed that David must have been behind it all. And if David denied it, for a conspiracy theorist, what does that mean? You're guilty. See, that's the thing with conspiracy theory. You're guilty if you deny it. And of course you're guilty if you say you did it. Because the conspiracy is always right. <laughs> All right? Remember, David wasn't even there. So Shimei is convinced that David is guilty and continues to shout these insults. Now, why is he convinced? And friends, this is the key. This is the part that I think is helpful for us. It's because Shimei is acting on what he believes to be a right interpretation of the events going on around him. See, he's concluding that the reason David is being run out of Jerusalem is because of his guilt in the house of Saul, and that drives him then. That is, that is the fuel behind him saying, yeah, get out! You go on, go on, go, go! That's right, go! Man of blood, worthless man, you deserve this. All this is happening because he is interpreting the providence of God. But he's interpreting the providence of God and coming to a wrong conclusion as to what it all means. He's totally off the mark, but he believes he has it all figured out. And that fuels him to mock and to insult and to curse David for what David was now going through. Now friends, the question for us is this. Are we guilty of the same thing? Are we like Shimei here at all? Let's put it this way. Are we guilty of looking at events going on around us and interpreting those events as God's judgment on us? Or on a particular person? Or on a particular institution? Or on a particular group or subset of people? Or maybe we see these events as some kind of message from God that we should think or behave or do something specific like sell our homes or give up our jobs or, or leave the state or go on the mission field. We, we see 
things happening, and we interpret what we see as a message from God to do something. Friends, when we do that, we may be misinterpreting what God is actually wanting us to do or what God is actually doing in the affairs of man. So do we, look, we tend to look at the providence of God as proof of God's attitude toward us. Well, hey, the reason you're sick is because God is not happy with you because of some sin in your life. Or the reason that you were in that accident is because God is trying to wake you up. Or the reason you didn't get that promotion is because you're a proud person and God was wanting to humble you. Now, friends, as a person who is on the receiving end, it is always good to ask yourself the question, what is God trying to teach me here? Nothing wrong with that question. But there's something wrong with us if we are interpreting the the situation and we're coming to someone saying, this is what God is doing and here's why. We've now interpreted the providence of God, the events of life, in such a way that we are convinced that those things are true, are from God. We believe we have the truth. Now in basketball, there's a saying when someone is fouled and it seems to be questionable and they, they go to the, the free throw line and if they shoot the free throw and it misses, they say, ball don't lie. And what they're saying is, well, if that was a wrong call, then somehow in the providence of God, the person who's taken the free throw is gonna miss the free throw if it really wasn't a foul. That God somehow in his providence proves himself by the fact that the ball didn't go through the hoop. What a bunch of nonsense. But you see how this thinking creeps even into a sport. There's an old Puritan preacher who chastised his church because he was convinced that God was not pleased with them, that they were great sinners, that they had some secret sin that they were guilty of, and that God was revealing himself and making their sin known. How did he come to that conclusion? Because their church had been repeatedly hit by lightning on multiple occasions. And so his conclusion was that God was speaking to them his displeasure through these lightning strikes. And this was all before scientists understood that the reason lightning strikes a particular building is because that particular building is taller than the other buildings in a particular neighborhood and churches that have a tendency to have a steeple with a cross on it are usually pretty high. But he came to the conclusion, why is it every time there's a storm, lightning strikes the church? There must be something wrong with the people in the church. You see how this plays out? And we can be guilty of wrongly interpreting the providence of God. And we can be guilty of doing that and that being fuel then for our behavior and our activity toward other people. And sadly, friends, there are people who seem to know exactly what God is doing and why and they want to be sure that you and I know it. (laughs) Enter Shimei. Now, We've had two, Ziba and Shimei. Now there's Abishai. 
And so that's kind of strange. Why would you bring Abishai into this? I mean, isn't he part of the, the whole Shimei story? Yes, he is. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that this is, there's, there's something of opposition going on here. Now, this is, what's interesting here is, is Abishai is one of David's leaders. And I think it's important for us to recognize that opposition isn't always from people out there. Sometimes opposition comes from people that are close to us who are well-intended, but by virtue of their thinking and their voice and their behavior, their desires, actually are seeking to undermine what God desires to happen in your life. Now, I'm not sure any of us would have handled things much differently here. The constant yelling of Shimei, coupled with the constant flight of rocks and mud, thumping into the mass of people, would have been extremely difficult to endure. And I'm sure that we can all relate to what we're here come out of the mouth of Abishai. Notice his impulsive solution, verse nine. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. Abishai was part of David's family, and so I think was taking these insults personally. I mean, David was the king still, and his solution was a quick one. A headless Shimei is a silent Shimei. Let me go take out this useless piece of trash, and we can go on in peace. That's my interpretation of why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. I remember when I was uh, in university, I'd always break for a week of Bible conference, and during one of those Bible conference services, the, the preacher was about 15 minutes into his sermon, and a young man, a student, stood up and started to yell at the man preaching, calling him hypocrite, calling him a legalist, calling him a false teacher that was leading everyone to hell. He lasted about 10 seconds before the ushers descended on him and he was gently escorted out of the building. Now fortunately, I have never had that experience happen to me, but there's always the possibility that something like that might happen here at Gateway and I would trust that our men would quickly respond. I could imagine, he's not here right now, I could imagine Voss saying, Pastor, you want me to give him a chokehold? Um, he is here. There you go, Voss. I mean, he's the guy that would do that, you know. He'd, he'd know what to do. Um, but that may not be the right response, right? Just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean that it is the right thing to do. Or just because it's understandable doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do. So we have to see that Abishai probably responded here to Shimei with good intentions, thinking about David, his king. Now it could be argued that Abishai is justified in his actions because to curse the king um, by virtue of the law could mean that you would lose your life. Um, and it was also, at least now because of this uprising, a time of war. Um, but just because it's understandable doesn't mean that it's right or a measured response. It just seems more impulsive based on Abishai's frustration here. So what does such impulse look like in our context? Let's think about this. 
To be impulsive is to act according to your flesh and allowing your circumstances to dictate your behavior. Let me say that again. To be impulsive is to act according to your flesh and allow your circumstances to dictate your behavior without taking time to think biblically and consider what God actually wants in that situation. Now you may be within your own rights, according to the law, but is your behavior really what is best in that situation? Does it model Christ-likeness? Will it be used to reflect the beauty of the gospel to a pagan people? Let me give you a couple of examples, maybe. You're driving down the road, and uh, you come to a stop, and you get rear-ended by another car, and it's your fleshly impulse to get angry and to yell at the person and to just complain of their stupidity and their lack of driving skills? Or are you more concerned with their health and with their safety? You see, these, all things happen. These, these are all things that are happening in our heart in that moment, right? And the question is, what are we gonna give into here? What's gonna come through? When I open that door and get out of my car, if I can, um, how am I gonna respond? How am I gonna speak? What, I'm gonna, what am I gonna say? And I might be justified. The person may have been driving erratically. They have been, maybe it may have been negligent in how they were driving, but is that far more important than that person's health and safety? When your neighbor allows his dog to come onto your nice green grass and relieve himself, is it your impulse to run out of the house and kick the dog and give the owner a piece of your mind? I mean, you've been working on this grass for a long time. Especially here in California, if you've got green grass, man, you're, you're doing really well. I mean, is it really worth it? Or do you take a moment to gain perspective and remember that it's just grass, even though it's precious to you, and that there's far more to life than grass? Do you give an opportunity for that neighbor to Respond apologetically and are you even considering that there's something greater going on in this big picture? Listen, if God has called us to reach those around us and you have a neighbor who's an unbeliever who allows his dog onto your property, how do you think that you're gonna be able to live out the gospel and model it if you get angry with them about little Foofy going out there and doing his thing? There's a right way to go about things, and there's a way that honors God and is Christ-like, that you can deal with problems, but simply allowing your flesh to kick in has greater impact, negative impact on your influence of those people and your ministry in that context. Now, we can be impulsive in a different way. When we see our friends and our loved ones or church family go through difficult trials, we may get frustrated with what we're hearing. We may get frustrated with what we're seeing that they're going through. And we have some thoughts that they need to know to help them get through what it is they're getting through. And so we may be tempted to tell them what we would do if we were in their shoes. Hey, don't let them treat you that way. They're just looking out for themselves. You've got to take the 
bull by the horns and be in control. Listen, if that doctor isn't telling you what's going on with you, go in there and demand that he tells you what's going on. I mean, this is the way the system works. You've got to go in there. You've got to grab it. You've got to force them. or They won't do anything. Now, there may be some elements of truth, but it's how you go about it. It's your life. You have to make things happen. You can't expect people to act if you're not willing to act for yourself. Now, really what's going on here is not so much helping that person, but you feeling like, I've got to share this. I've got to tell them because you're upset and, and you want to somehow get in there and allow your flesh to motivate what's happening here. The intention may be right, but they may not be looking at the bigger picture. There might be something else going on. Have you ever been in a situation where you were like, oh, you know, I need to go talk to that person, and you like, and you don't, but afterwards you, you find out what was going on, you're like, oh man, I would have been a total idiot if I had gone there and said what I was wanting to say to that person at that time. I know I've thought it many times. <laughs> All right, these are things that we, we do. There may be something going on that is far greater than what is right before us in that particular moment. And if someone is trying to give their insight and give their instruction and give their counsel, they may not see the bigger picture, they may not understand it, they may not be open to it. Now notice David's response because I think that's what we'll see flesh out here as, as this section now comes to a close with Abishai as he's speaking now. And notice David's response is, is really remarkable. It's a revelation of his interpretation of the events that are going on. Now see, we have, we have one oh, over here, you have Abishai who's interpreting the events, but David is also an interpreter. We're all interpreters. We're all asking questions. But the thing is, what are the conclusions that we're coming to when we're asking those questions? Are they definitive or are they perhaps answers? And we'll get there because that's what I think David is doing. This is a helpful guide for, for us to see how we assess the events of our lives, in particular how people treat us and how people speak against us. Notice, first of all, we have a response to Abishai and to Joab. You're like, well, wait a second. I don't see Joab in there. Look at verse 10. But the king said, what have I to do with you, you what? Sons of Zariah. Abishai's brother is a man by the name of Joab. I remind you, who Joab is. Joab is another commander, leader of the armies. There's Abishai, there's Joab. Joab was behind manipulating David through the woman and her story about the conflict in her home and the death of the son that was all a ruse for David then to bring Abishai, not Abishai, Absalom back to Jerusalem and to be reconciled with him. That was all Joab at work. Joab has a thought, Joab has a drive, Joab is motivated to see it happen. Well, the apple is also not falling that far from the tree. Together, they are seeking to have David do this one thing. So that's why he says, why? What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? It seems like both Joab and Abishai here are wanting now to, uh, to, to lobby David to rid himself of this dead dog from the house of Saul. 
But notice how David responds. He says, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? In other words, God may be using him to be a hand of discipline on me. Now, he's not saying that Shimei got this revelation from God, God told him, you need to go and you need to mock David. He's not saying that. What he's saying is that God in his providence may be using Shimei to speak into my life. And so David recognized that he would be enduring evil while facing the consequences of his sin. That's what 2 Samuel 12, 11 says. There's gonna be evil. Bad things are gonna be happening during this time of consequence. And the results, or say the, the insights and the insults heard at him from Shimei might very well be part of God's purpose in the bigger picture of his discipline on David. David wasn't saying, as I mentioned, that, he underst- that Shimei understood uh, what God was, um, what God's hand in it here, only that David could see the Lord's purpose in it. And friends, this is where we have to understand as we're looking at the circumstance, even as we're looking at how people treat us, is God working through them They have no idea, but working through them to point something out in us. That's what David is saying here. No, you're not gonna cut off his head. Perhaps God is using Shimei as part of the means of consequence that I have to endure. Then, notice the response to Abishai and to all the people. Verse 11, and David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now by this Benjamite? David's response to Shimei's cursing is to ask the question, is God trying to teach me something? This may be of God, he's saying. God may be saying something to me here, and am I willing to listen? And so David is saying it may be by Shimei, he has every right to curse me because God is doing something to me that this season of consequence and discipline demands. See, what what God has been doing with David, if you you remember, is, is God is allowing David to see up close the consequence of his sin. And this is, this is no small thing. When we get into, after the new year, we get into the next part of chapter 16, he's gonna see it up close again. Just, it's very, very much in front of him. And this is all teaching David and reminding David of his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. And this is the heartache and this is the pain that comes as a result of disobedience like this. And so this is all the stuff that is, is the fruit of David sitting down and writing a psalm like Psalm 51 where he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. God is bringing all this up close for David to see in its raw reality. So David is not just focusing on Shimei's words, and actions alone, he's looking at the situation with a bigger picture in mind. There's something greater going on here. This is not just about cursing. This is not just about mud. This is not just about rocks. There's something bigger happening here. And David understands that that bigger thing is God 
working out his will through these events to actually mold and to shape David and to bring about what he has promised. So he says, don't cut off his head. God may be using him to remind me of my sin and his discipline on my life. And David understood then what the apostle Peter says in his first letter, 1 Peter 4.19, hear this. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I mean, it's that last part, while doing good. Bigger picture, God is allowing this to happen. He's working on my life. My responsibility is not to act in the flesh. My responsibility is to walk in the spirit and therefore to produce fruit that are good fruit in the context, even in the midst of suffering. That was 1 Peter 4.19. Now specifically, David says, let me go back to the verses 11 and 12 here. He says, what Shimei is doing is a small thing. It's a small distraction in light of the fact that my son is seeking to take my life. All right, over here I have a son who's trying to murder me. Over here I have a guy who's saying nasty things and throwing rocks. Which one is the more challenging thing? And then he goes on, he says, what I'm experiencing is discipline and consequence, but in due time, God will repay me with good based on his promise to me. In other words, I'm going through this time of affliction. I'm going through this time of consequence and suffering, but I know because God has promised me that he will actually bring some good times to pass. Now you might say, well, is that, is that you know, health, wealth, and prosperity thing? No, I think for us, to be absent from the Lord is to be, uh, you know, absent the bodies to be present with the Lord. So to be in heaven is, is, is a beautiful promise for us, and we have that as our hope. And so the promise for us isn't always, oh, you know, then my, my, my retirement's just gonna be fantastic if I endure all this stuff. No, what God is saying is even while you're here, you may be suffering, but ultimately when you get to heaven, your promise will be satisfied. You will have your inheritance. You will be in the presence of God. You will be with the saints. And There's so much that we don't know about heaven, but what we do know is that it will be beautiful, it will be wonderful, and it will be satisfying. So friends, this is so critically important for us to grasp. How does God want us to respond to others when we're going through um, difficult times? Are we to allow our circumstances and our flesh to dictate how we think or behave, or are we to see the bigger picture of our sovereign God who works his purpose and plan even through times of suffering and trial? And in all of it, he is seeking to bring glory to himself. He wants to, to, to us to see that our lives are under the constant hand of God's providence. So that can include times of teaching where we're like, boy, this is good, this is helpful. That could be uh, times when people will say unkind or insensitive things to us. It could include uh, times when people with good intentions will offer unhelpful situations that can be a distraction. It could include times when we're surrounded by people who are there to encourage us. All of those are true, and there's probably a lot more we could add but there's a bigger picture, that God is at work in all of that, shaping us and molding us. Now friends, Jesus experienced this. 
Isn't this what Jesus had to do when he was mocked and scorned during the Passion Week? Isn't this what Jesus had to wrestle with when he said to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will but thine be done? Isn't this what Jesus had to hold on to as he was being nailed to the cross? Isn't this what Jesus prayed when he endured the scoffing of so many? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. All they saw was a criminal on the cross. They couldn't see the bigger picture. They couldn't see the whole span of time and God's providence and his work in, in, in allowing the Lamb of God to go to the cross and be the sacrifice once for all. They couldn't see this wonderful Savior who's promised in the book of Isaiah coming and being the satisfaction that was necessary for that Savior to be the Savior. They couldn't see, as we began with here this morning, the hope of nations. That God wasn't just for the Jews, he was for everyone. And Jesus was that hope who hung on that cross. See, there's a bigger picture that's going on here. And verses 13 and 14 really just kind of wind down the story and let us know they arrived at their destination and ultimately they were refreshed there at the River Jordan. Well, I want to finish just with three concluding thoughts just to, just to punch this home a little bit more. Number one, I want to encourage you to look up. I want to encourage you to really be thinking about do you have a divine perspective? Do you have an already determined divine perspective so that when you are gonna go through suffering, you will not be driven by your feelings, your appetites, your desires, but you'll be driven by what God wants you to think, how God wants you to respond, how God wants you to behave. So look for the bigger picture of what God is doing. Look for the divine perspective. See, David was stepping back and he was, he was taking all of this in and he was coming to a conclusion. All right, God, his promises, my suffering, God is at work. He is doing something here. Secondly, let's just be honest about life. Look out, all right? I could put that in quotes also. There will be opposition. There will be opposition for you. And it can come from people who are outright enemies, who are opposed to the gospel, but it can also come from well-intended brothers or sisters in Christ who are reading the circumstances of life, the providence, and coming to conclusions that may not be accurate, but they're well-intended. And so you got this gamut. There's gonna be opposition. So the question is not just be ready for it, but do you already have a mechanism of being able to think through that when it happens? So these are, these are all issues that are, that are taking place in the context, in the, are, the arena of the heart, which includes the mind, the thinking process. This is why, again, having good theology of suffering and trials is important. Because during that suffering, during that trial, well-intended people may come to you and give you advice that is not helpful. How are you gonna respond? Enough! Get out of here! Leave me alone! Is that what you want to do? Or is it, hey, listen, thank you. I really appreciate it. Let me, let me consider that. Let me pray about it. I say that there, there's ways that you can think through this, and, and, and you are not going to do damage to people that love you. <laughs> All right? So look out. But third, look at. Look at. I just want to remind you 
When Jesus hung on that cross, he was one who suffered abuse, scorn, mockery, pain. He suffered, he endured, he bore the weight of our sin. And just kind of using the language of the text, what you are experiencing in your trial is a small thing compared to what Jesus endured on the cross. You see, life, this journey that we're in, there'll be people that encourage us, there'll be people that oppose us, some enemies, some well-intended. But Jesus, again, is not only our example, he's our model, he, he understands what we're, we're facing. He understands the, the, the trial in our heart and we need to look to him. Lord, help us today. I, I just, I know, I know that we're, we're encouraged by learning about people who are encouragers because we're thankful for them. We need them. We long for them. But Lord, we also need to have a, a healthy perspective about those who may come into our circumstance for selfish purposes and trying to manipulate. We may come into people who um, are, are seeing our struggle as a means to kick us when we're down and to hurl abuses or seem to interpret the events as some form of judgment from God. And Lord, there are also brothers and sisters, people that we care about and who care about us who get captivated with their interpretation of things. They want to act with impulse. And yet, Lord, you want us to be people who are measured in our responses and how we think through things. You want us to be people, Lord, of the book people who are walking in the Spirit, who are being led by the Spirit through spending time in the Word, through spending time in prayer, who are constantly thinking through, God, what would you want me to do in this situation? How would you want me to reflect you? And sometimes in our suffering, we can be so consumed with ourselves, Lord, that we forget that even in the midst of that suffering, you, you put us there so that we can be proclaiming the gospel by virtue of our lives. Sometimes we are our own worst enemies because of our flesh. So Lord, help us today. Help us to, to settle into what it is that you're saying to us with all the different things that we're going through as a church family. Give us strength. Help us to endure. Help us to look up to you, to see you as our great God and Savior. And Lord, to be mindful of the reality of the struggle that is before us. Lord, we thank you that we have you. We have your body. We have the word that you've breathed out for us and your Holy Spirit who works through that word to fashion, to shape us. Lord, we are truly blessed people. Lord, we're struggling. We go through our own troubles and trials, but Lord, we are blessed because we have you there to lean on, to turn to. Lord, and then allow us as individuals and as a church to be careful. 
Be mindful, Lord, of what it is you want us to do as we come alongside, as we help one another. Lord, help us not to be guilty of kicking people when they're down, but drawing out of them an understanding of what God might be doing that perhaps he's trying to teach them. Lord, allow your word to speak. May it fill us, may it fuel us, Lord, to live our lives for your glory. We ask this in your precious name.